Our great God and Father, you are a God of love. And as we come uh, once again to turn to this chapter in the Bible, this searching, exacting chapter, describing your character and how we fall short, would we once again look to you, be delighted with who you are? Would you give us the resources to love others in these sort of ways, we pray? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a quote for you. What a man rejoices in is a good test of his character. I think that's someone else's quote, but I googled it and couldn't find it. So it might be mine. So if you like it, describe it to me and, you know, we've talked. But what a man rejoices in is a good test of his character. Do you, when do you get most excited? Is it in the good things that happen to you? Is it in the bad things that happen to people you dislike? A secret, yes. What is it that gets you most excited? Or rejoicing? Of course, there's the, the, the banal things that come and go. It may well be the result of a football game or a, a rugby game. That was good, wasn't it? The, um, uh, yesterday. Uh, it could be money in the bank. It could be your children. When did you last say, though, rejoice with me? Rejoice is a bit strong, isn't it? You're not just you're quite pleased, generally. When you rejoice, it's, it's a sort of really value-added excitement, isn't it? You don't say, oh, rejoice with me. I just had a wonderful steak. You don't rejoice in such a thing. You might comment on it. You might say it's quite good. But you wouldn't rejoice in it. You rejoice in slightly larger things, don't you? You rejoice in the birth of a child. You rejoice in a wedding baby. You rejoice in these sort of things. You rejoice in truth prevailing. Yeah, we do that. We know that. You see vivid examples such as the uh, inquest into the Hillsborough disaster. Years, years, for years, the truth is concealed, then it's revealed, the truth prevails, and people rejoice. Yeah, of course. It takes something a little exciting to cause rejoicing. Come today to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, if you're joining us today, we've slowed down quite a pedestrian pace in our study of this book and this this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We spent a few weeks in Paul's a beautiful uh, and yet somewhat punchy uh, description or application of love. He's writing to a church which was loveless. So these are particularly these characteristics in, in verses 4 to 7. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It's not an abstract description of what love is. He's applying it because in context, he's saying to a church, the church in Corinth, love is patient and you are not. Love is kind and you are not. Love doesn't envy and you do. So it's somewhat of a rebuke to them, which is why I think for you and for me, we find it a searching chapter. If you swap your name in for the word love, it becomes a little embarrassing for all of us, for any of us whoever it might be. Andy is patient. Andy is kind. Andy does not envy. Andy does not boast. Andy is not proud. Andy does not dishonor others. Andy is not easily angered. Andy keeps no record of wrongs. And his wife says, is that really true, my love? (laughs) All of us could make the same comment. I read one observation on this this week. Apparently, Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century preacher, fairly well-known in the Christian world, uh, a big footprint he's left behind. Uh, his daughter, 
uh, one of his daughters had an exceptional temper to her, sort of uncontrollable temper. But a young man fell in love with her and, uh, and she with him. And so the young man came to Edwards and said, Sir, I want to marry your daughter. And Jonathan Edwards said, you cannot have her. But sir, I love her and she loves me. You still may not marry her. But sir, why? Because she is not worthy of you. But sir, what do you mean? She is a Christian, isn't she? To which Edwards replied, yes, she is a Christian and she is my daughter. But the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else can. Ooh. Ooh, that's, that's tough love right there. Now, there's a sense in which, okay, that's pretty extreme to say of your daughter, don't marry her, don't marry her. None of us can cope with her, only God can cope with her, really. But uh, you come to a chapter such as this, and you put your own name into the place of love and think, I'm not sure that's a wonderful or perhaps the most pertinent description of me. So we come to verse 6. We've slowly worked our way through. In verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, that's not, again, it's not an abstract statement. This chapter is all about how you relate to other people. So no doubt it is good to rejoice in the truth, rejoice in objective truths, rejoice in, in, in lists of biblical statements which are true. That's, that's all very well and good and appropriate. That's not what he's talking about here. It's relational. So we need to have a look at it. It's an odd contrast. Uh, I don't know why it gets translated this way. It's the same verb in both halves of the sentence. Love does not delight in evil, but delights with the truth. Or love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It's the same uh, in both halves. You and I probably wouldn't have written it that way. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in good, probably. Or love doesn't delight in falsehood, but rejoices with truth, probably. But let's take each half in turn and then try and uh, work out what he's saying. I'm going to cut it like this, uh, for those who like to scribble these things down. Love does not rejoice at evil. Second, love rejoices with the truth. Third, so rejoice in the one who is truth. Okay, love does not rejoice at evil. Second, love rejoices with the truth. So third, rejoice in the one who is truth. Taking this, uh, these, this sentence, then breaking it down, uh, verse 6. First then, love does not rejoice at evil. It's not quite how it's translated here, but I think that gets much more the sense of it. For those who care about such things, uh, epi, more a sense of at rather than in. Uh, and again, because it's relational, I think that's a better or more helpful translation. So he's not talking about someone who delights in their own evil here. This is not a comment on the thief who steals treasure and then boasts, rejoice with me, rejoice at how much I've stolen from people in Mayfair, but rather rejoicing at the evil that is done by others. It's celebrating someone else's sin that he's saying, don't do that. Don't rejoice at evil, you observe. Let me just try and push it in two ways. First, therefore, there's no delight in immorality. Now, the reason I said that, if you will just turn back with me just a few pages to chapter 5, 
of 1 Corinthians. I think this must be what he's referring to, really, on page 1147, chapter 5. Love is not meant to delight in immorality. And yet in Corinth, they were. So chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Oh dear. A man is sleeping with his stepmother to the clear uh, horror of his father. And everyone at church is saying, well, this is marvellous, isn't it? It's marvellous how liberal we are as a church. We're very accepting here, you know. I mean, I know that those two are married and the son should honour his dad, but really, it's fine. I mean, it's nice to have open marriages these days, isn't it? And uh, we just love people. We don't... It's it's a bit... We're not the sort of pure people who sort of inquire into what happens in the bedroom. We just celebrate anything. And whenever anyone is happy, we celebrate such things. No. A son is sleeping with his dad's wife, you should be saying, stop it. That's adultery. People are getting hurt. But you're proud. You're proud of such a thing. And so Paul is saying, why are you celebrating adultery? Love does not delight in wrongdoing. It's not meant to. Why do you think it's a good thing to do? Now, back in chapter 13, I I don't think that's very distant from us. Because culturally, we, we do take some pleasure in wrongdoing done by others. So if you wander out of here and uh, before going to the the park or on your way to the park for for a picnic, you just stick your nose in the newsagent. Most newspapers, I guess particularly the red tops, will have a delight in telling you three in a bed romp, celebrity drug scandal, celebs cheeky affair with dot 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 is on the front page. And people go, oh, I'll buy that. Why do we do that? Because there is a pleasure in reading about the things that go wrong in other people's wrongdoing. They all get printed because there's an audience. I don't want to pick on one above all others, but uh, it's just very obvious. If you ever go to their website, which is not particularly worth doing, but The Sun, The Sun's website, their banner is news, sport, gossip. That's what we do. Well, kind of. But anyway, news, sport, gossip. That's what they do. Gossip. That's what we give you. We, we'll tell you the stuff that, that the celebrities don't really want you to know about. And we like that. It doesn't even need to be at the level of celebrity, which is quite a broad term uh, in the 21st century. But even just amongst ourselves, gossip is, well, there's a pleasure in that. Again, I don't know where I got this from. It's in my scribbles from some times past, but... Gossip, vice enjoyed vicariously. Did you, uh, did you hear what Michael did? I shouldn't tell you, but I will. Did you hear? We just pass these things on. It's just a little delighting in evil. There's a pleasure in that. So don't do that. I mean, that's the first thing, I guess. No delight in immorality. Uh, Another application of this, I think, would be just, I think he's getting it, no delight in evil that is exposed. By which 
Sometimes, and uh, perhaps this is a little closer to home for you and for me, sometimes uh, there'll be someone who irritates us or or with whom we disagree. And all of a sudden it's revealed they've done something wrong. And we think, ha. So I don't know how it works. It could be that uh, you may disagree with David Cameron's politics. uh, And therefore when he's accused of uh, doing immoral tax evasion, we're slightly delighted at that. We always knew. We always knew he was that sort of man. And so there's part of us which just finds pleasure in his evil being revealed, if that's the case. Or imagine uh, you may disagree with Jeremy Corbyn's politics. Uh, and so were he exposed as having another affair, moving on to another woman, we'd think, well, yes, I'm quite pleased to know. I'm quite pleased that that affair has come out because it reveals he's just the sort of man I always thought he would be. That sort of pleasure. A, a delight when some evil is exposed in the life of someone we dislike, or perhaps is a rival at work. They reply all to an email by accident, and it's a cutting email they write, and we think, ha, you are exposed. Good. Well, love doesn't do that, he's saying. So I guess here's the question. It's a question I... I, I, um, I thought for myself, really, if, here's a question, if someone who irritates me is exposed in wrongdoing, is exposed for not being as nice as everyone thinks they are, does that bring me any pleasure? Well, love doesn't do that. It doesn't delight in wrongdoing. So love does not rejoice at evil. Uh, secondly, let's go to the second half and um, put it positively instead, though. By contrast, secondly, love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Now, what does that look like? Well, I guess most obviously in the Bible, there's just a delight in godliness. Question, how am I a loving person? One recurrent way the Bible answers that. Am I a loving person? Answer, do you obey God? That's the test. So uh, clear in uh, particularly John's letters, uh, 2 John verse 6. This is love. What is love? This is love, that we walk in obedience to God's commands. As you heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. What does it mean to be a loving person? It means to obey the Lord. It's not complicated. It's not the only definition, of course, but that's got to be there. But again, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's primarily talking about relationships, how we relate to one another. And he says, love rejoices with the truth. You've got to hold those two together. Love is truth's best friend. Did you read uh, uh, at the end of last year, Karam and Katari Chand, they've been the world's longest married couple for a while, but they hit 90 years of marriage first people to ever do it. Uh, they're Brits. I don't know why I get blood. But anyway, Karam and Katari chant, and uh, they say, you know, what's the secret? You know, inevitably they get asked, what's the secret to your long marriage? And they say, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> and um, what was the, what's the secret to your long marriage? He's 109, she's 103. What's the secret to your long marriage? We don't argue. No, at that age, you probably don't talk that much either. But um, that's pretty one. But they said the one thing that does emerge is they said we can't imagine life without the other. 
well, how can you after 90 years of marriage? You just don't, it's very unlikely that you imagine life without the other. Yes, very young when she was married. I know, it was a different age, <laughs> if you're doing the maths. But yeah, because they're meant to be together now, and presumably when one goes, the other will go within months. That's often how it happens, doesn't it? But love and truth are partners. They're not meant to live without one another. Love keeps truth kind. And truth keeps love honest. Now, we may struggle in one direction or another. Uh, Let me tell you this. Uh, One or two would have heard me talk about this in the context of marriage. But uh, when I was a younger Christian, uh, in my early 20s, uh, a very good friend, I guess a a close friend, came and uh, a man called Andy and said, Matt, would you mind me making an observation on your life? Which is, of course, the friend's way of saying, you have a problem. Uh, But there are friends, they put it politely. Would you mind if I make an observation on your life? No. No, you feel free. And he said, Matt, as a young Christian, you have the most wonderful zeal for the truth. It is obvious in all your interactions. Now, if you could just ally that zeal for the truth with a love for people, it would stop you being obnoxious. (laughs) And you might actually do some good. You want to hold the two together. Now, that's tough love. But uh, it was probably a word I needed to hear. Now, truth without love is brutal. But love without truth is cowardly. It's cowardly. Because that man, Andy, loved me, he was willing to tell me something I didn't want to hear. It's tough to love in that way. I dwell often, about 12, 15 years, I lose track of the time. Uh, Many, many years ago, uh, a young couple uh, here got engaged, and I thought to myself, you should not get married. This is not going to go well. You should not get married. But I just couldn't tell them that. That's quite a big thing to say, obviously. But I thought, they'll hate me. They'll roar at me. They won't agree with me. So I'm better off not saying it. And that it, you know, within a fairly short period of time, that ended very badly. And so I resolved, okay, if you ever think that again, you've really got to, you've really got to speak. And there have been a couple of times where you gulp about a million times and go, guys, are you sure? Are you sure? And again, that generally that conversation doesn't go so well. It's quite a big conversation to have. But love is not cowardly. It will tell the truth. Now, that's not our modern culture, is it? Because in modern culture, we're just big into affirming people and affirming people's lifestyles. Uh, you want to, yeah, yeah, love just affirms people. So I want to be an opera singer. Yeah, you, you go for it, man. You follow your dreams. <clears throat> Shouldn't someone tell him he sounds like a hippo <laughs> burping when he sings? No, no, don't tell him that. Just, just love him. Love him, love him, love him. Just affirm him. Yeah, yeah, you go for it. You go for it. Yeah, we're going to have a, a, an open marriage. Are you? Yeah, you go for it, guys. You, you, you be true to yourselves. You just, you just go. Shouldn't someone say that don't go well? There's always jealousy. It always ends badly. 
No, just affirm them. Just to, it's great. You know, love just says, you go for it, you go for it. Yeah, yeah, whatever you fancy, you go for it. That's our culture. No. No, look, truth without love is brutal. But love without truth is cowardly. You've got to have them both together. They're best friends. No objection. Someone will say, oh, look, sometimes there's a conflict, isn't there, between the, truth, the, between the two of them, between honesty and truth. You just did the small things. Uh, my friend, my spouse says to me, hey, do you like my new haircut? Yes. <laughs> we lie. And we think, it doesn't really matter. It will grow. It, it's only a lie for about a month or two. And then it will become true again. So that's okay, isn't it? Well, the problem is, you know, I, you know, I, call, I feel that's of course in my own mind sometimes. It just doesn't really matter. I'll just tell them what they want to hear. I just, the problem is, I just can't imagine Jesus doing that. Well, it'll hurt them a little bit if I tell. The, tr- the truth and love have always got to go together. And I take it in those sort of settings. Or your boss or someone at work says, hey, what did you think of my presentation? It was interesting. You can find a way, and of course, in a healthy relationship, it doesn't matter if it's at work or in a marriage or in a friendship, in a healthy relationship, there is enough affirmation, there is enough love expressed that the tough comments can come. The truth can't come if there's no affirmation ever. But that's where you see love and truth. Truth is not simply just accurate statements. Biblical truth is accuracy within a relationship where there's love. Because you need to hold the two together. It's never just brutal. It always cares. So love rejoices with the truth. And of course you see that. Well, you see that most clearly in Jesus. Love doesn't rejoice at evil. Love rejoices with the truth. So look, how do we move in that direction? A third thing, let me say this. You've got to rejoice in the one who is truth. The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look, I have to be honest with you. In 1 Corinthians 13, we're not going to get all the way through verse 7. I've got one more hit, so we're going to do all of 8 to 13 next week. But you look at verse 7. And I thought, well, actually, many of those attributes that love protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres, you see them along with rejoicing in the truth in Luke 15. So will you turn back with me to Luke chapter 15 or page 1048? Jesus famously tells, these, famously tells these three parables of things that are lost and found. I'm just going to briefly comment on the, ver- the first two of them, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Luke chapter 15. It begins with familiar complaints of the religious leaders of the day. Now, chapter 15, verse 1 of Luke. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Our familiar complaints of the religious leaders, they don't like what Jesus has to say. So here's one way they can criticize him. Look at the company he keeps. Now, Jesus never delights in the wrongdoing of tax collectors and sinners. But he loved them. 
And so he tells these stories. Uh, uh, Chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country, go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, there is something slightly risky about this shepherd's strategy, of course. He doesn't, we're not told that he packs up the 99 sheep in a pen for the night. He doesn't call over a mate to say, look, can you look after the 99 while I go after the one? It's slightly risky, I guess. But Jesus insists that the shepherd representing him searches, 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 searches until verse 4, he finds the sheep. He gathers the sheep onto his shoulders, carries him home. And we're meant to see it as a picture of God's, well, his determination to love. His protection in love. Here is the heart of the living God. He takes the initiative, he goes to great lengths to seek and save lost sinners. If the penny hasn't dropped, he tells another story of a dropped penny. I like that line, even if you don't. Um, uh, Verse 8, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? Again, another story of something searched, something lost, excuse me, in a search for it. She loses a drachma. Now, if you're on the national average wage of whatever it is, 25, 26K, what's that? A silver coin, a drachma, it's about 70 quid. About that. So that's worth looking for, I guess. And so verse 8, it gets all her attention. Lights a lamp, sweeps the house, searches carefully until she finds it. Everything else gets dropped until she finds it. And again, that is God's concern. He's got nothing else on his agenda apart from looking for, caring for you and me. Sinners. That's what he cares about. And the outcome in both stories, of course, is great joy. Both of the stories pull it out. So uh, in the first one, in verses 5 to 7, three times you get joy. Uh, when he finds it, this uh, shepherd, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. There's rejoicing there. Or in the other story, verse 9, the, uh, the woman calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin in the same way. I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in these two stories, it seems a little bit over the top, doesn't it? In one sense, the reaction. Hey, everyone, everyone, come round. I'm throwing a party. Why? I found a sheep. Okay. Or everyone, you come with me, come with me to the pub afterwards and celebrate with me. Why? I found 70 quid. Okay, a round is going to cost you more than that. So that's bad economics. I don't know what you're doing. It seems a little excessive, a little over the top. But the point is God just loves it. When someone who is not a Christian becomes a Christian. And all of us are sinners who need to repent. All of us. God loves it. When that happens, that's what gets him so excited. Okay. 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't rejoice at evil, but rejoices with the truth. How do we move ourselves? How do we stop being those who get a little bit excited about uh, titillating gossip and the things that go wrong? 
How do we stop ourselves being those who are excited when someone who irritates us has something exposed and we have a sort of little yes? How do we stop, how do we stop rejoicing in the wrong things and rejoice in what is good, rejoice in what is true? Well, I guess the key to it is you, you need to rejoice in this truth. The Lord God loves, loves it when someone becomes a Christian. He just adores that. Jesus wants us to know nothing gives the heavens greater pleasure than that. You need to know that Jesus Christ is a God who rejoices enormously in you. That this is the party that has gone on in heaven when you became a Christian, if you've done so. If you were to become a Christian, if you do so, this is the party that takes place. This is what gets God so excited. You need to dwell on this truth. It is far more exciting than titillating gossip, discovering evil in others, celebrating things that go wrong. And look, if we're captivated by this truth, then we care a lot less about things that we shouldn't. Because this is what fills our mind when we dwell on it. If we dwell on this truth, we won't delight in evil, but in what is true. And then we always hope and persevere and don't give up on people. Isn't it wonderful you have a church where instead of when we greet someone or when we think of someone, we don't think of the things that are wrong. That's not hard to do, isn't it? We could all do a SWOT analysis on pretty much everyone in church. They may not be very accurate, but we could all do it. Here are things I like. Let's do the other side first. Here are things that irritate me, and, uh, what, and here are things I like. We could all do that. But to be those who delight in the truth, that is, delight in things that are noble in people, delight in what is good, and don't dwell on what is bad in people, that's a nice place to be. That's a weak word, isn't it? That's a wonderful place to be. Be that sort of church. And you get that way by, well, by dwelling on the truth that Jesus Christ is a God who delights in you, has got out of his way, has left everything to rescue you. Let me conclude. This is a paraphrase of uh, something that J.C. Rao wrote many years ago. When you look at Christ's love, Christ's love is a truth-filled love. In Luke 15, the shepherd doesn't say, hey, yeah, go and explore the world without me. You're free. The shepherd says, I know the truth and you need me. And just so Jesus doesn't leave us alone to ruin our lives, he calls us back. Christ's love is a self-denying love also. The shepherd brought his lost sheep home on his shoulders rather than leave them in the wilderness. And just so, Christ didn't spare himself when he undertook to save sinners. Christ's love is a deep and mighty love. Just as the shepherd rejoiced to find his sheep, so the Lord Jesus rejoices to save sinners. It is still his delight to show mercy. His love never fails. It always hopes. It always perseveres. His love rejoices in the truth. And if you know that, Oh, it helps you do the same. Let me lead us in prayer together.
Our Father, we are not the people we would desire to be. Often we're not the people we think we are until we scratch a little bit beneath the surface. We are quick in, in, in lots of different areas to actually enjoy evil, to enjoy the things that are, are done wrong. Not loudly, but to whisper our pleasure in them. Father, will we be those who with people, with people in the church family, we delight in what is true, what is noble, what is good, and don't dwell upon, don't enjoy, don't delight in the things that are wrong. Father, we praise you that you are a God who rejoices in the wonderful truth of of salvation more than anything. And will we be the same? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.